0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode I'm joined by Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller. That Human Rights Tribunal ruling to compensate First Nations kids that the PBO has said could amount to as much as $15 billion, and that the House of Commons voted to resolve, that's his file. The commitment to end all long-term boil water advisories for Indigenous communities, that's his file. Ensuring support for Indigenous communities throughout the pandemic, that's his file too. Of course, The position has only been Mark's since November 2019, so pandemic response has entirely been him, but both the court case and clean water commitments predate his term by four years. Those responsibilities were previously held by Minister Bennett, then Minister Philpott, and Minister O'Regan. Before he became a parliamentary secretary and then a minister, Mark sat behind me in the House of Commons, and I got to know him as someone who takes his role seriously, certainly does his homework, and avoids talking points with a degree of earnest honesty we don't see too often in politics. He also somehow finds time to spend an hour a day learning the Mohawk language. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Nate. In court, the Judicial Review continues of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case. The Prime Minister has said, This shouldn't be characterized as the government fighting First Nations kids in court. Cindy Blackstock obviously articulates it as just that. How would you describe the proceeding and what do you want to see as an outcome of the proceeding?
1: You know, like the prime minister, like you, I I, I want to see First Nations kids that have been discriminated by a broken child welfare system duly compensated for the harms that they've they've suffered. I'm a bit uneasy this week, particularly providing sort of color commentary to ongoing proceedings. I, I know um, the extent to which both I and, and David, Minister Lametti, have been looking through the proceedings to make sure they are respectful in an immensely delicate situation, to make sure that when we do disagree with opposing counsel, that it is just the essential arguments and those that, that represent the government's relationship with Indigenous peoples. Obviously, that's hard to do, in a legal proceeding where people lawyer up and take very polar positions. Um, You know, I I am listening to the ongoing proceedings in the court. And as a minister of the crown, I have a duty to keep an open mind, even as to the, the arguments that are being presented as they go on and have an ongoing relationship with counsel. So that, you know, I won't comment directly on what's been argued today and what'll, you know, what'll go on in the next couple of days. But this as everyone that's that's dug into this a bit is an immensely complex set of facts that goes back a while with dozens of orders that are associated to it along about different issues about how children have been treated unfairly and unequally. Fundamentally, the work that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, which, is, as you know, is a statutory body, it doesn't have the full powers of, of a regular court constituted under the Constitution. It, ha- it does have a limited jurisdiction, and it actually has done some groundbreaking work with respect to achieving substantive equality between Indigenous children and non-Indigenous children. And that is um, that has taken on uh, different forms, whether it's compensation or services that Indigenous kids have not gotten. We recently funded about a million dollars for genetic treatment for uh, very rare diseases uh, for, for a kid. And that'll save his life. Ten years ago, that just wouldn't be the case. And so Jordan's principle is about fundamentally a jurisdictional tangle between the Canadian government and provincial governments as to if there is a question about who, treats indigenous qu- children first, you you pay and you ask questions later. That's just the basic principle on it. Now it's taken on different forms and branched out into different areas. It's gone into the area of uh, the tribunal decision and jurisdiction, which is a sort of evergreen jurisdiction, has gone into different areas, whether it's funding prevention work in communities to help transform the system from one that rips away children from their families to one that really focuses on the front end of things, which is diametrically opposed to a court proceeding. And that's getting money into communities So we don't get there. And there are profound discussions in here about the effects of colonization, about poverty, about all sorts of issues that lead to the removal of a child from their home, which has happened far too often and far too many numbers. Uh, if you look at the children in care, for example, in Manitoba, of the 9,500 that are in care, and that's provincial, 90% of them are indigenous. So there's still a big problem in this country that is the result of a broken system. Now, what's in court today is um, a, an issue in and around how children get fairly compensated for discrimination that they have suffered. You remember last campaign, Nate, about, about uh, a ru- the ruling that was issued in 2019, and the prime minister said he would compensate children that had suffered discrimination. Now, the court actually didn't order us to pay at that point. They ordered us to go down this road, and this has sort of gotten lost in the public narrative. They ordered us to go down this road and find a model by which children would be fairly and equitably compensated. That goes to issues as to who would get compensated when and along what process so that people don't get re-traumatized and re-triggered and re-victimized in the process of compensation. So I put my assistant deputy minister, Valerie Gideon, on that with um, all the parties to the proceedings to come up with that model. That model was finalized in early January. And then the order to pay as pursuant to the order, only came in a couple months ago. And we can test that on a number of reasons. Uh, the first and foremost, issues with respect to proportionality of the harm suffered. The award was one award as to whether a child was one day in care or 20 years. And as we know, with all prior proceedings, whether it's the residential school settlements or otherwise, a range of harm has been suffered by these children. And at the same time, two different class action proceedings have been instituted, one by counsel to a an individual called Mashum, and the other by counsel to the Assembly of First Nations. So those are overlapping claims that throw in another layer of complexity about the same group of children, in theory. So it, it isn't uncomplicated, and, and we particularly during the, this week, it's difficult to get into the legalities but we are in, in in confidential discussions with the parties and we will continue to do so because the last thing we want to do is be in court and, and I, I gave you a long answer but I, it's important to underline that there hasn't been a, a single child dragged into court as a, a lot of the narrative has gone and it's important to highlight it. it doesn't mean that this can't be traumatizing for people but there aren't children testifying this is a respectful disagreement with. Council to the Caring Society, AFN, Nishnabek Nation, and other parties. We just want to get to a point where we have a process where by fair, equitable, and just compensation can be awarded.
0: And in terms of where that disagreement lies, I read the factum. I read a number of materials, but I read the factum from the government that said both systemic reform and individual compensation can and must occur. You've just said the prime minister obviously has already gone on record to say we are committed to compensation. The PBO has done a range of different estimates from what I have seen, ranging from low estimate of $2.2 billion at one point to a very high estimate of $15 billion that I've read most recently. Obviously, they also describe it as highly uncertain. The residential school settlement, which you just referenced, was, from what I recall, about $10,000 for anyone affected, but then there was an independent assessment process established that ended up being in the low billions, I think around $3 billion potentially total. But it was to say where individuals had been abused in the residential school system, there would be an independent assessment process to understand what compensation should be in the particular circumstances for that individual. Is that the the kind of outcome that you would imagine here? So when it comes to quantum, I don't know if the $15 billion number makes sense from the PBO. It sounds like a, a very large number when you put it as against residential school system settlement but when you look at the the process where is the disagreement as it relates to the process it seems like the appropriate process would be an amount for everyone and then an independent assessment process to get at individual context
1: i can't speculate as to the i, I can't even talk about what what these discussions would look like between the parties currently. But if you look at what's gone on in the different settlements, there has been at times a base amount, and then, you know, a a multiplier or higher, higher numbers, depending on how much time the person was in school or in care. And then extraordinary amounts for harm suffered again this can be re-traumatizing and and very very difficult for claimants so we're very very sensitive to this particularly given you know this is a much younger group some of them are grown up but still a much younger group so we're very sensitive to that but obviously a proportionality as to the the harm incurred without having to um have people uh, testify in a way the, the evidence there is evidence out there what we know is that the CHRT put a maximum amount of its jurisdiction and then applied it to everyone which goes against some very very basic legal tenets but it also seemed to address sort of an individual approach or a class action like approach to a system that wasn't necessarily built for it and we know that systemic harm requires a systemic form of compensation and that is um it's number one of the arguments that's been advanced in in the factum so This is a large group of claimants, potentially, as well as um, another aspect of the case, which deals with Jordan's principal and potentially children that were denied a service that they were entitled to receive historically. And that's another set of factors so it all adds up we know that reforming the system is going to cost billions Uh, it just is it already has i've seen the expansion and rightly so of the budget the indigenous service Canada administers and it's been a game changer for a number of communities but there's a number of elements in and around long-term reform in how these uh, monies are deployed as well as transformation of the systems themselves which will take the work of the provinces and territories but also the lifting up of inherent jurisdiction of communities as they um, reclaim something that we take for granted, which is their inherent rights of jurisdiction over their ch- child and, and child family services. And that was the art of C92, the reform legislation that we put forward at the end of the last mandate, and that is is very much of a slow-moving train, but will ultimately be transformative for, um, for nations as they lift up their
0: inherent rights. Here in Beaches East York, we hear from a lot of constituents who are concerned about clean water issues, but secondary and close is this issue of resolving the broken child welfare system for Indigenous communities. You mentioned 90% in foster care are Indigenous in Manitoba. Across the country, I understand it's about 50% of kids in foster care are Indigenous as compared to about 8% of the general population. So incredible disproportionality and something that obviously needs to be addressed. The calls to action are in relation to this court Proceeding and in relation to the compensation, the call to action, I think, from the motion we passed in the House, but also from Canadians writ large, from my community at least, is to say we want a speedy resolution to the compensation debate, and we and we want kids to be fully compensated who have suffered discrimination and inequality in the provision of services. But two, we also want that systemic reform. And so I've seen a billion dollars from a past budget. Obviously, we passed C92. There are complexities. And I, I say this based on my own conversations with urban indigenous service providers who say C92 doesn't really incorporate us as much as it should. What more do we need to see as it relates to that systemic reform?
1: I, look, I think everyone's eager for results. And it is, it is the realization when you see these reports of people dying in care. I always refer people to the reporting that Kenneth Jackson is doing. It's, it's cutting edge. It's very poignant. It is very painful to read, but he's he's out there reporting on the current healthcare system. Um, Ontario has uh, an immense amount of challenges. It's going to take, I guess, unintended, but very, very beneficial uh, effect of a bill like C92 and having this issue raised to the top of the political agenda has really focused, even with the jurisdictional squabbles that exist, it has really raised the consciousness of politicians that really wouldn't put this at the top of their list, all things being equal, at the provincial level, at the territorial level, at our level, to really raise the, the 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 issue of the broken child care system that is disproportionately affecting vast amounts of Indigenous kids. The genesis of it is uh, is rooted in deep colonial legacies, as I mentioned, uh, poverty inequalities. So uh, trying to fix it with one top down element just doesn't work. I mean, more money is key there's no question about it, but the reform of how provinces intervene, how they interact in a culturally sensitive way, how they work with their own indigenous communities that are, are lifting up their legislation, it's going to be messy, but it's going to be beneficial to the children that are constantly under threat of being removed from their families. C-92 did come into force and I say it's been slow uh, for a number of reasons, but what it did from day one is put a basic standard on the best interests of the child. Workers have to assess the needs of removing the child in a culturally sensitive way, which they hadn't done up to now. And so there's a whole set of standards that hadn't exist. They were sort of willy-nilly and, and misapplied in a way that Indigenous kids were, were disproportionately affected, which has resulted and fed into this, this system. But there's still stuff happening. And it needs reform from the provinces, from the feds. It starts with more money, but it starts with work in communities with leadership, especially Indigenous leadership, as they work on their own child welfare laws, their own legislation to bring their kids back home. There's some early adopters. Early adopters tend to have more capacity, but there's challenges in other communities where capacity is a much bigger word, whether it's housing, fighting economic inequalities. And those are the communities that are that have more often than not more children that are removed but the will is there a lot of communities approach it in um, a very profound way and we're there to support them in 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 building their own laws i think we put about 500 million just in quote-unquote capacity for lifting up indigenous legislation in the last two fiscal economic statements prior to the budget but it's work that'll be ongoing for the next few years you shouldn't leave your listeners with the impression that nothing's happened i mean jordan's principle has been a game changer i've gone into communities where they've applied All these programs for prevention for those families that have ill children that are really really struggling they've gotten the funding and the supports that they need and sometimes sadly it's gone to court as to whether something should be awarded or not and it can be a very painful and very public display of of where the continued inequality exists. Uh, the two previous ministers that had this portfolio had that challenge as well, uh, but we keep moving forward. And I think there have been some game changers. They just aren't as, as obvious as some of the more um, devastating things that we keep seeing. I have a job that is to bring everyone together. So it's very hard for me to, to sit here and sort of point out provincial governments, but this won't get fixed without the buy-in of provincial governments and working on their child welfare systems that remain very much ones that are focused on, on intervention and, and less so on prevention.
0: In engaging when Jane Philpott was the minister, I came across just a dearth of data because, as you say, these are provincially run child welfare systems. And so for the federal government to have a clear understanding of what are the different reasons and the categories of reasons that children are being taken from their families and put into foster care, and then starting to have a a systematic approach to address those underlying reasons, we don't have the complete data that would really be helpful in in responding. And so I think you're exactly right to say we need a strong partnership with with provincial authorities. You're also right when you, and I wish we talked about this more, when you highlight the connection to poverty and you talk about economic inequalities, longstanding, I would say, you look at the history of Canada and the way we have as a government and as other institutions like churches but treated indigenous communities has helped to lead to the poverty rates we see in certain indigenous communities at least and obviously they're as a key social determinant of health that is going to lead to negative outcomes including in our child welfare system yes let's reform the child welfare system itself as much as we can but not putting the policies in place to also confront poverty and we've made progress i would say imperfect and incomplete progress but that has to be part of the conversation as well that this notion of economic justice looms large when we have these conversations about whether it's in our prison system or whether it's in the child welfare system and the disproportionate outcomes in many ways it starts with this notion of economic justice
1: starts with economic justice and extends into social and and the reform of the justice system when it comes to uh, mandatory minimums over incarceration for every uh, man or woman that's Indigenous in jail, there is more often than not a child that doesn't have a father or mother. And those are those are issues that sort of escape the mind initially when you start thinking about these things, but it rings quite true. And then the numbers, just sort of the disproportionate n- numbers fuel the disproportionate numbers in In the care system and the ending of birth alerts, which has been slow, but progressive is, it will be another contributing factor into, into making sure that we're not just perpetuating the same mistakes that have been made before. And, you know, you cited the numbers of 50%, whereas it's 8% of the population, but it's also more children in care than at the height of the residential school system in terms of kids that frequented the schools. So it's a big problem. This government has put a lot of political and financial capital behind fixing it. And it, it remains, it very much remains, and obviously the events of this week testify to it a, a work in progress.
0: Certainly there have been criticisms for the speed of that progress. But I say this at the doorsteps, at least. I say we've made meaningful progress and we need to build on that progress. And I think the child welfare system needs to be a major priority. And I hope we put the same number of resources that we put into clean water initiatives into the answer and the systemic reform of the child welfare system and to that kind of poverty reduction that's also required. When you talk about the fact we have made progress, it's often a source of frustration and source of criticism as it relates to our commitment to end all long-term boil water advisories by March, 2021, obviously behind us now, we didn't do it. When I look at the public reporting, I see almost 70% of the advisories that did exist, the long-term advisories that existed when we took office in 2015 have been lifted. There are water projects underway in every community that needs one, to my understanding, at, at different phases. And there's no one-size-fits-all solution. But when you get confronted with this question, and and it's in part a resource question of do we have the resources necessary, it's in part a capacity question of how do we build long, long-term long capacity in communities to ensure that there aren't future threats to water systems. But is there a timeline in mind? What What is the status of Lifting existing advisories and then fulfilling that commitment we made back in 2015.
1: The commitment, frankly, when you reflect on it, is stronger than it was in 2015 because the 2015 commitment was we're going to lift all the existing long-term water advisories, uh, and there were 105 in place at the time. But the optic was always in just lifting the advisories and lifting the advisories. And we got we got into power, which was obviously was a surprise to all of us, and. We realized that there was a massive undercapitalization of infrastructure in communities, but first and foremost being critical at water assets. The untold story that doesn't get out there as much as the one uh, of short-term water advisories, which after a year become long-term water advisories. And there was a lot of fragility with respect to water systems in Indigenous communities. And not it's not like there isn't any across Canada, but just far too often they occur disproportionately in, in Indigenous communities and stay far too long. So you have communities like Niskandiga that had 25 years. You have Laxol that we listed 15 months ago that was 18. 18 years, so not a single child on that reserve had grown up with fresh water available through that particular system. You know, it's kind of, it just focuses the mind when when people say, do you have any excuse? Well, there, it, this isn't a time for excuses. It's a time to get keep moving things forward. And we made, I think there is a very important signal that the prime minister made to Canadians when he said, we will lift these things. We certainly put the capital political and financial into it into engaging with communities and making sure that they had the plans in place and the backing of the government to lift you know even if you look at the strict confines of lifting the water long-term water advisory getting clean water into the communities quote-unquote building the plant that investment was there but when i became minister in november of 2019 going into covid i sat down with my team and said well what are we doing here? And can we walk and chew gum as we go through COVID as communities are, are, are shutting down? Can we maintain uh, the momentum that we've had? And we were pretty confident through the first wave, but we were looking at what are we doing in and around long-term water advisories that we need to do over and above, simply lifting them. And again, communities lift the water advisories, we don't lift them. And what came back more often than not was, one, where the Fed's going to be after March 2021? You're just going to disappear, and you know you fill, you'll fulfill your long-term water advisories. And two, doesn't necessarily cut it to get all the the money for the capital in there. But you got to be with us for the long term, which is, I guess to my earlier point. And you know whether that was more investments into expanding current systems, um, working on longer-term projects. We work with communities on a number of projects, and as you said, they they vary from community to community. Some communities because they wanted to get water up and going, chose shorter term solutions with our commitment to a longer term solution. And some communities said, well, we're going to keep the advisory on until we have the longer term solution locked in and up and running and tested. You know, I have to respect those decisions. It does sort of play with the timeline. And then COVID hit and things shut down. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, we did lose a construction season. There's absolutely no question about it. But there, there are absolutely challenges. The main one, though, is in and around additional investments, but also in and around operations and maintenance, which is not a very sexy topic. It doesn't make headlines. But there was a flawed formula that we would, the feds would fund 80% of, of the operations and maintenance. And basically, operators were getting paid less money than they would in a, uh, a non-Indigenous community. It's not right. It should be, equal pay for equal work. And there are fewer of them. So there's a capacity issue in some of the most vulnerable communities and building up local talent, making sure they stay, making sure they get the right pay. You know, the announcement in and around when we told Canadians that we would not be able to meet the deadline was also a very important announcement in and around enhanced investments in water infrastructure, but also a new O&M formula, an operations and maintenance formula that went to 100%, and the effect of which will be that by 2024, we'll have quadrupled those investments. So communities will have the discretion to and the ability to pay their members and their operators the proper type of compensation that will change the risk profile of, of the water assets in a, in, a, in a radical way. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that So we've lifted 107, which is really, really good. And we've got a chunk left in about 30 communities. So it's not one community, one water advisory. Some communities have five, some have six. There can be a number of water advisories that apply to the same communities. The difference that we face now that any government would have faced in 2015 is that there's a plan in place. A number of the communities that have been on long-term water advisories for a long time are producing clean water and are able to lift, it's just as taking time to do sort of final testing or working with those communities, particularly ones that have been on for long-term, the confidence that they have to take that difficult decision to lift the long-term water advisory. I haven't lived without Clean water for 20 years, so you can imagine someone that has been s- skeptical of the taps for 20 years that they would take a little longer and work with the community to make sure they have all the supports and plates to lift. That could be frustrating from a politician's perspective from Ottawa, but we have to let the communities take the time to do that. That's the case, for example, in the Scandiga. So, you know, we 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 keep working, we keep our heads down, but there are plans in place. I asked my team, and we did do it uh, earlier in March to revamp the website, so you can actually go on the Indigenous Services Canada website and see the plan in place for each community that's remaining. I am reasonably confident, you asked about a timeline, but I I guess I'm reasonably confident that this summer, there will be a good chunk of, of
0: advisories that are lifted. There's a certain reticence probably in setting a definitive timeline to get to zero. But when you look at the status of the water projects across communities, And I think it is fair to say this is certainly the message I hear, and I I share the view of my constituents on this entirely, country as wealthy as Canada, I mean, no one, no community, regardless of background, but especially a community that has been discriminated against by the state historically, but no community should be without clean water. Great to hear that many will be lifted in the summer, but is there a sense of certain communities, given the nature of the challenge and given the status of the water project are still many years away? There was, I think, a, a media report, and I don't know if this was a civil service briefing that was accurate or not, but set 2026 that that seems like a a very long time away and unacceptably long time away is there a sense of when or is there still reticence to set a timeline because it might be missed for for a myriad number of reasons
1: no i mean i think like i said i think that the balance should be lifted in the relative short term there are a couple of projects that are long term where the shorter term solution has been not retained and that's the, the prerogative of the community the the 2026 number just wasn't accurate it reflected a totally other, different consideration but again like my job with it with the team is to get clean water into communities and however it's characterized we'll work with communities to lift the advisory but also be with them in the long term. So I know we, we use this as a target, long-term water advisories, but I think uh, given the amounts of investments that we put in and the partnerships we've built, but it'll be an ongoing challenge, particularly keeping, keeping short terms off from, from going long-term. And there's been, I think 108, there's been a, a real chunk of short terms that have just been knocked out, but th- they'll always be work with communities and we'll just keep doing it. And it can't, like you said earlier, we, it varies from community to community
0: you mentioned the challenges of COVID in relation to the lost construction season. It's been, I think, a really a a real highlight of the pandemic response. When I see the updates from indigenous services in relation to the rollout of vaccines into indigenous communities and the prioritization of indigenous communities. And I know there's a a current challenge in Northern Ontario. Charlie Angus is posting quite critically for those who are unfamiliar, I suppose, with the with the response and would say, well, what have you done in relation to the pandemic response and the vaccine rollout or, or more?
1: Yeah, well, I won't be happy till it's all over. Um, and with all these things, um, particularly with Indigenous communities and pandemics, there is always these brush fires that remain well after the main fire is, uh, is out. And that is that that is for a number of reasons. It's I think it happened with with H1N1. But I think generally as a, as a country, we've done a, a pretty good job. The comparators obviously is the U.S., you know, when it comes to places like Kisheshwan with a high youth population, well, we know first and foremost that we can't win the battle against COVID on Twitter or TikTok. It really has to be with boots on the ground and with deep engagement with a community that, that has its set of challenges. It's a community that gets evacuated every flood season. We've done it respectfully over the last two years on the land where the communities have been able to separate physically. It's been good for the mental health to do on their, their local goose hunt, which is really cool. The, the situation we faced a year ago was the fear that that community that was quite vulnerable would would go into the local urban areas and then get COVID and then come back and it would, there'd be the, what we're seeing today. Luckily, with Kisheshwan, there was a high level of immunization among the older segments of the population, including second doses. So there's a relatively good job done there. A few elders didn't get their vaccines um, and, they, and they've contracted COVID, but it's gone in like wildfire with crowded. what we've been talking about from the very beginning, which is crowded housing conditions. And, and this is going to get a bit worse before it gets better. Now there's over 200 cases, mostly among the youth, which, as we know, has a much lower level of ICU hospitalization, but still it's long effects of, of COVID. So it's scary. And we've been mobilizing from day one with, with Chief Friday to get assets and resources into the community health supports. The, the, the health guidance is typically a shelter in place. But it's very hard to have a shelter in place and drop your R ratio if you're 16 people to a house or 15 people to a house. That changes with people that are immunized. So it's a bit of had this happened this time last year, it would have spread much like Shimadawa did, where we had to bring in a full contingent of, of of the armed forces to really help out because things were shutting down and communities through no fault of their own can get, you know, if the water operator gets COVID, they got to isolate and, and the community can shut down. So it is a bit of a different scenario but we've been I, I was in in discussions with the chief over the weekend to to see how we can help and cut through any Red tape, there was a reconnaissance done by the military on a virtual one on on, on Thursday or Friday, and then one physical on on Sunday. But at the same time, there are resources going in to get more isolation capacity, deal with with problematic substance use and mental health challenges, that this always arises in these situations. Whenever there's one of these outbreaks and we're getting used to them, uh, time is of the essence. COVID works always works faster than government. And we just got to get in there pretty much no questions asked, obviously, with the permission of the community and help in the best way we can. And that goes with communication and it goes with cooperation. It, it, and so I don't fault anyone for reacting the way they react. These are always difficult situations, but we've always said from the very get-go we'll be there. The government of Canada will be there for these communities, particularly most vulnerable and spare no assets. When you look at the deployment of the vaccine to your earlier point, there's something I think so far, to be quite proud of, essentially, a vast majority of Indigenous communities got their first dose before our cabinet did, or the prime minister did, or, did, or I did. And that, I think that speaks, it's not superficial. I think it speaks something to the priorities that we've set to our country, particularly if you see our friends to the south or elsewhere getting their all their vaccinations first, and it's, it's it's a free-for-all. We made sure that that got into Indigenous communities quite quickly. In fairness to our American uh, cousins, they did get vaccines into indigenous communities uh, quite quickly. So I won't and I won't I won't indict them on that. A little more difficult at the beginning, but what we were seeing when we when we were seeing the first initial outbreaks of COVID was the example of the Navajo in the US and the numbers coming out from the CDC and on the ground reports that confirmed our suspicion indigenous communities were three and a half times to five times more susceptible to getting COVID than um, the non-Indigenous communities. We didn't have that good a data set initially because we, there were just not enough COVID. in during the first wave, I think there was a total of 400 cases on reserve. So Indigenous communities did great. It started with communication, started with making sure our teams were talking to each other about the best public health guidance with respect to a really uncertain virus. And then when it came to deployment of the vaccine, leveraging that knowledge and saying, hey, to the provinces, we, you know, let's work together. Let's get our tripartite tables together with Indigenous communities and get those vaccines into arms as quickly as possible. And I think largely... Indigenous communities have um, have had a very difficult second wave, but have weathered the third wave because of that. And I've, we haven't parsed through all the numbers and there's all, you know, they, they'll always be challenged. We also have another unknown, which is the impact on urban communities. Our best data sets are such that we know that indigenous communities have been affected in the urban areas in BC and Manitoba, where the, the data is the best, but only just proves our initial assumption, which is um, when it comes to vulnerability, we put the measures to bear to, to make sure people were safe and, you know, I talked on the initial answer to this question about brush fires, but there are high youth proportions of the populations in indigenous communities in the far north. And you can talk all you want about 80% of the adult population being vaccinated. But if they're only 50% of the population, the math is such that only 40% is entirely vaccinated. So that's a big worry of mine. I'm glad that Pfizer is down to 12. I know that there's some work done by Moderna to get it all the way down to two. So we'll see what happens. My only point in all this is I'm not in a position to be too proud yet. I, I just want to keep doing this until we make sure everyone's
0: safe. And you mentioned urban indigenous communities. We've had this conversation before at different times, but when you look at the focus and commitment towards reconciliation, and we've seen it when you look at clean water, you see an initial $2 billion allocation, hundreds of millions in subsequent budgets, over a billion dollars in the fall economic statement. When you look at the commitment to health and housing, it's billions of dollars focused at closing gaps for as it relates to education funding on and off reserve, closing gaps on child welfare, and run down the list of commitment of funds. And I think it's $18 billion in the next five years in the most recent mm-hmm. budget, but largely focused on reserves and delivering for housing, health, and more on reserves. And then I look to my own community in an urban center and I look to the numbers across Ontario. And I'm told that over 80% of Indigenous people live primarily in urban areas and slowly but surely it feels like indigenous services and the government of canada is incorporating this into their framework so recently through the indigenous community support fund i saw 150 million dollars for urban community organizations but it still seems like we haven't fully incorporated this into our thinking to deliver for urban Indigenous communities in a really serious way on housing or on other issues. But we are we are starting to incorporate it, but still seems like there's a lot of work. To
1: do. Yeah, inevitably you get discussions into discussions about which level of government has the jurisdiction, but has the best ability to deliver things in a way that is most effective. The reality on, and this is not every province is on board in, in, in having that sort of distinctions based delivery model to urban indigenous realities that's just just a fact bc has always been in terms of the provinces first first in class in doing that but there's many initiatives across the country and I, i don't indict them at this point in our neck of the woods indigenous services canada has never done a superb job of this um they've usually kept the lens squarely on the um, reserve reality or the nation-to-nation reality with, with communities. The relationship is a bit different in the urban setting. It's sort of nation-to-organization or potential organization that has never had the funds to really exist yet, but lots of people that are passionate about keeping their people safe or tribal organizations uh, that are serving their off-reserve populations. It really, really varies. It's not as easy a conversation as it would be the one that we have with the band council. We know that the gaps, when we talk about these socioeconomic gaps, they're similar, but they're they're much larger still on reserve. It's just the reality the UN, the UN index, the human development index points to that. But there's a need. There's always been those organ the organizations that we funded through some of the COVID response and the numbers that you cited, they're going to increase because we're going to keep deploying money to those organizations, have been game changers. Uh, we know that the vulnerabilities exist within those organizations, but they have never been properly funded. And so what we've seen is is the results that they've delivered throughout the pandemic. So I think that now when we look at budget 2021. We know that those organizations deliver. We know the need is there and we know they keep people safe fundamentally. The argument that's been made for so many years and that we've sort of, we've, we've made significant funding amounts into friendship centers or urban indigenous organizations, but the need is great. And now we have proof points to prove that they deliver for their uh, their members. But it is, it's always a tricky organization. There's a lot of politics involved that, that people feel that you're, taking from one and giving to the other. At the end of the day you're you're serving the same people. I think when it comes to the infrastructure monies in the budget there's certainly real hope there. We know when it comes to housing in particular about five or six ministers have carriage with either on reserve or or off reserve housing and it can be very very confusing for someone that is intimately aware of government workings but completely ununderstandable for for anyone outside government. So, you know, a lot of the criticism sometimes is around the complexity. You mentioned the numbers, and it's the reality that that we face going through COVID is that COVID doesn't kind of check the constitution before it decides whether to infect someone. So that it's an easy way of saying that we need to continue the work that we've done. I I think, you know, I reflect outside COVID, if we'd made those budgetary announcements for urban indigenous organizations, notwithstanding COVID, it would be historic amounts. But because we've had COVID, it certainly, it certainly changes the argument, but we've, definitely put the money there it's 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 worked it's changed lives whether it's food security or supporting dispensaries or even some small infrastructure builds they've all been needed and um they'll continue to do good work but you can't end this conversation without talking about the role that the provinces have to continue to play in serving um people that they're responsible for as well
0: i think that's right it's definitely incumbent on provinces to step up where the principal jurisdiction for the federal government remains on reserve, but people don't live their lives in that way. And so we need both governments to work hand in hand to support people regardless of where they live. And there is work underway to my knowledge, though, again, it's, it's more a question of speed. And I, I expect the pandemic has upset this in some ways. But in Toronto, we have the Toronto Aboriginal Support Services Council. They do amazing work. They bring together Aboriginal housing providers like Wigwam and native child as it relates to child welfare and a range of social services. And they bring a collection of organizations together to have a united voice. And there are similar organizations, not in every urban community, but in many urban communities. And I know there is work underway to create a national kind of coalition that stitches these voices together where they have similar shared challenges. And that would be, I think, if we can get to that place, a really important voice on the national stage to be in constant contact with someone like you to say here are our needs and yes work with provinces but collectively work together to deliver for us and and work in collaboration.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, Toronto has its reality of urban Indigenous life and kind of varies from city to city. The conclusion that we inevitably draw is that they all need more support, more funding, and they all do um, great work and they've been driven by people who have really been putting their own financial <laughs> security on the line to help. Help others, it is a long term project, and again, it isn't an excuse for the government simply to say that we only do on
0: reserve. You are a minister with very difficult files, and not only in relation to the court battle and the judicial review and the determination of compensation and systemic reform for child welfare, also, an issue around clean water and, and ensuring we make consistent progress towards ending all advisories, but also pre pandemic. You were a principal figure in the Wet'suwet'en national conversation around title and there was a railway blockade. You visited the Mohawk leadership and there was actually a transcript that in advance of our conversation, I read too much of, I don't think you were even, you even knew you were, you know, you're being recorded today, but I don't think you knew at the outset that you were being recorded in the course of that conversation. You have personally spent considerable effort to learn the Mohawk language and I remember you sat behind me in the house and you stood up and you gave I think you were the first person in history to give a speech in the Mohawk language in the House of Commons and yet when you attended and spoke to that Mohawk leadership you were an unknown there wasn't trust yet and as someone who clearly has this personal passion and commitment and I can tell when I see your media appearances I could tell when I spoke to you in the house when you're sitting behind me, and I could tell obviously when you made the commitment to learn the language. But that question of trust—walk me through the challenge of, as someone who who really is—I can tell deeply committed to this. How do you go about building that trust and ensuring that this conversation is an ongoing one where we're consistently building that trust?
1: Yeah, and I don't have all the any maybe maybe any answers, but I don't have all the answers. (laughs) One of the trappings of being a minister for Indigenous issues is that if you think you're in control or have all the answers you're wrong and you should be fired so flip that to a minister that has a different portfolio. And if you're not in control and don't have all the answers, or at least pretty much of them, you've got you've got a problem. So, so these are unique positions. The one that Carolyn holds and Dan holds are unique positions within government. They are based on um, historic mistrust, but a fundamental duty and a fiduciary duty of the crown towards Indigenous people, which starts with honesty and forth being forthcoming. My undertaking to learn Mohawk was a personal one. I didn't know I would get this job. I, I certainly didn't think when I started learning it that there was even a, a, a potential outcome. I just did it out of sort of naivety and thinking uh, how hard can it be to learn an indigenous language? It turned out I picked a hard one, and they're all difficult to learn. mohawk's a polysynthetic language that's built around a root, and then you add things right. And then there are gen- two two female genders. There's a male gender. There's a n- neutral. Anyway, there's that. And you, if you speak one to two people, you change the word, and then one to three people, change the word. If they're male or female, they're different So it's, it's it gets a bit complicated. And plus, not that many people speak it, and a lot of people have been fighting to reclaim it. So. I kind of jumped into it. I met a lot of great people that weren't necessarily elected council or involved in politics. They were very political, but they care very deeply about their people and their language and vitalizing their languages that have been stripped from them or their parents. Or, or their grandparents and i just met a lot of great people and it, that sort of built a, probably a bit of trust it doesn't necessarily carry over to community x from community x to community y but it sort of gave me an understanding and an appreciation for some of the the challenges and difficulties small window into in, into that that can easily be closed and then maybe on the flip side of things people said who is this guy and is he really committed and i always joke that, that after i gave that speech that you were mentioning the next day my wife, when I woke up, my wife said, you better continue your lessons or you're full of shit. And I was like, yeah, you know, I probably do." <laughs> she's don't right, she's, right. she's <laughs> right, And so I did continue. And I still do like an hour a day, but it's really hard. There's very little written material. And I have, I, I follow three or four immersion courses, but, you know, in the course of the day, it's hard to do this. And I listen to passive listening to podcasts and and stuff on SoundCloud. But, you know, um, I think people do appreciate it. It's really a measure of respect. When I first got this job, Mike McLeod, who you know well, just said, just keep your mouth shut and you'll be fine, which is, you know, sounds a lot like Mike. <laughs> and, and, he, and he's right. You know, there's there's a premium to listening. I, I, I take it quite seriously. And, you know, showing up in the middle of a protest that is you know, gripping the country and shutting down the economy, knowing that people that show up at solidarity movements, I forget whether there's train tracks in the way, but they're not necessarily elected folks or people that in the community that, that that you would normally if you had to choose the set of people you would negotiate against you wouldn't necessarily say, pick people that that have such strong views and are willing to to do so much about it so you just have to show up and listen and is what I did and we spoke did we did we solve it i, th- I think you know it's important to get an understanding of, of people's perspectives i think that when it comes to conflict in this country the violence starts when people stop talking and so knowing the the history we have with with armed forces being used against indigenous communities and the way police have interacted with indigenous communities i thought, I thought it's important for someone to show up and have these discussions the elder that actually spoke at the at the train tracks i had glasses on and i realized like a year ago, I'd had breakfast with him, but I didn't understand it was him at the time. And so I kept having this, this sneaking feeling that I knew the person until I, we went to lunch and I saw that it was him. Which is kind of funny anecdote because it really is a small world. I do, I do care a lot about this. I realize that I don't have the, all the answers. I try to be as truthful as possible. That that comes with a it does come with a cost. I think at times, but I think we owe it to Indigenous communities to be as forthcoming as we can, and particularly in matters of that have defined this country. Have, um, have scarred it and shaped it. And then really I speak, perhaps the idea that I have as a country is perhaps not the one that it is, actually is, let alone the one that Indigenous people see Canada as. So my fundamental reflection in all this is not knowing all the answers, you kind of just have to keep trudging forward and relying on on teams where you're actually. Listening. I rely heavily on my indigenous staff and hearing what they say. Zoya is one of them, but there's 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 others that I really care deeply about that have a particular view and it can these issues can weigh heavily on them and they and they've saved my they saved my ass a couple times. So I I do value that relationship. I value the civil service, which in a, in a much maligned department, particularly particularly the voices of of the indigenous civil service, which does suffer the effects of systemic discrimination and racism. And yet, still trudges on, knowing that being in the civil service in Canada can be seen differently. But they're there to help their people. So it, it is a it is a tough department, but it's one that personally I feel I, I get a lot out of it, I mean, it's, I feel like an idiot telling you that I get a lot out of this, and it's very it's very enriching for me because uh, the the topics are so difficult. But they are ones that I'm passionate about. About the future of our of our country, I do recognize that they are painful. But I, if someone asked me if I'd rather be somewhere else, the answer would be absolutely no.
0: You are bang on. That Mike McLeod is right about everything. When I was reading through the transcript, two things to that. One, I quite liked the the statement in relation to the law of the land. The rule here is we don't steer the other one's boat. And then you, at one point, responded to say there's two portfolios with government that are painful to deal with: Indigenous issues because it gets very personal if you care; it gets personal very quickly, as you know, with politics and communities and Veterans Affairs. And those are two big files that. And you say. They're not equal by any stretch of the imagination, but neither one are files that we've been particularly good at at addressing in a proper way. And so I think the pause and reflect and where do we go from here moment, it's cheap politics when we hear opposition members say, it's all symbols, it's all words, we need action. And obviously we need action. The 70% of long-term advisories that have been lifted, that's not symbolism. UNDRIP legislation is not symbolism the indigenous languages legislation with associated funding, the child welfare legislation with associated funding, Bill C-22 that addresses mandatory minimums and conditional sentencing and drug policy reform. And you go down the list, these these are not symbols, This this is action. The real question though, and this is, I think, the reflection that I would have on behalf of my community would be when we see the remains of 215 indigenous kids found at the former residential school, and we know there are others. And Murray Sinclair has said there are likely thousands more of these unmarked graves. Have we done a lot? Yes. Have we done enough? No. And I hope there's a collective moment to demand greater ambition from our government. And I hope we follow through. I hope you stay in your role. You, you want more ambition, too, I think. But we, we, we do need to demand greater ambition.
1: To your earlier point, I think nothing nothing makes certain parties more mad than when you do what they would do. That's just the nature of probably human nature that exemplified in, in party ethos. But again, the uniqueness of the portfolio is such that you can you can invest billions and billions of dollars, but you, there's no real place in doing a victory lap when, once those monies are invested, whether it's a the new mercury center in Grassy Narrows or, or a bus among the a community um, along the same river, they, because it, you're talking about historical inequities, or if, when Carolyn goes and settles a specific claim that's been sitting around for 100 years and was a no-brainer, you can't sort of pat yourself on the back and say you did a good job because they 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 look more like reparations than noblesse oblige government, whereas you do a gazebo in in, in the beaches and you can like congratulate We yourself. don't want gazebos here. We got enough gazebos. Not I don't know gazebos. what you guys do in the beaches anyway, no. but I, won't, I just didn't more, want to generalize just generalize it. Just
0: affordable housing, Mark. That's <laughs> <sorry>. affordable
1: housing. <laughs> anyway, but you get my point. Like it's just <laughs> you can celebrate that a little more than something where 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 you're really trying to fix it wrong. 100%. And you know. It's just on. It's on to the next thing, and particularly in a global pandemic, it's just I'm, I won't be happy until people are safe, and and it will take time. So you're right. These are things that we just have to realize as a country. There's no simple fix. If you think it's simple, then you're not really understanding the the magnitude of of the problem. And it's one that's based in respect and and trust, and those are things that are really really. Um, thin when it comes to the 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 way the federal government has behaved historically i think we have a role as a federal government recognizing this and i think when people talk about symbolism sometimes it's p- profound expressions of respect but then you have to do more than that and move on uh, and, and and actually move towards transformative change which which it doesn't matter whether you get the recognition that it deserves it it, it it'll change lives in the long run and then you have things that are like the discovery in Kamloops and knowing what the TRC said there are thousands and thousands more to be found I don't think any community in Canada and I may be wrong but has a protocol for such a disastrous finding and so they have to come together with dozens of communities that were where the kids were removed to the Camlets residential school and see what the best way forward is and that takes time it doesn't it doesn't feed the the thirst that people might have for instant answers and therefore instant resolution so I've been working with with my with my team to make sure that the communities have all they need for their support but they've also asked for sp- Base, um and respect, and even if you're an Indigenous leader, I don't know how, um, you know, you're dealing with survivors that perhaps don't want to speak about things, and then next generations that are outraged. It, it is a very difficult and painful situation to be, be in, and pain expresses itself in many ways, all natural, but as in things natural, they're not that controllable. So, you know, you, you just have, to, what we've been doing ever since then is reaching out to communities and saying, what are the things that you need? Is there an immediacy to this? you want to take your time if you look at the work that's been done in Kamloops or in Brandon for example Brandon had an SSHRCC grant that was probably too small but they've been doing for years this does take time some other communities have reached out and said they want to they want to take their time but they don't want to be they don't want to lose the mo- the opportunity to get money right so they don't want to have a, a rush decision we had money at, uh, that was tagged to the 2019 budget that we will deploy but it, it it most certainly won't be enough but getting that sense of what will be is is an important um, aspect as well, including the work of provincial governments that need to fry, free up their statistics and their corners and their and their investigative resources. so it's provincial and federal responsibility, especially when there are not not every residential school is on a reserve or quote unquote federal crown land provincial land as well. so some of them have gone. Up now have private owners and so it adds a layer of complexity and that's even before you get into some of the issues that i can speak less to which is how people see their own lost spirits especially children and how you deal with with unmarked areas and the protocols relating to that
0: if there's any way for someone in my position to support your efforts i mean do let me know your predecessor had sort of working groups and i had been participating in a child welfare working group as an example so i don't know how you find the time i am barely competent in one language and French is a challenge so that you spend an hour every day committed to learning Mohawk is impressive to me on, <laughs> it,
1: on its own. You do an hour of French, Nate. You could do- <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. And special thanks to not only Mark, but to Mark Staff-Zoyer. He helped set this up. He's a regular help to our office on these issues. And he's one of the Indigenous team members that Mark spoke so highly about. Our next episode will be focused on Islamophobia and hate speech with Amira El-Gawabi. So do check that out. And please, if you are a regular listener or simply stumbled across this episode and happened to like what you heard, please do leave a positive review on your platform of choice. Otherwise, until next time.